All right. All right. So had a little time to reflect on last week. I'll give you a heads up. Um, in a moment, we're going to do another uh, book giveaway. And if you want a book, um, it, I'll just look for the person who raises their hand. But uh, there's a cost this time. The cost is uh, you need to share a reflection from last week with the whole class. Okay? So just any reflection if you want a book. Uh, and we'll do that here in just a moment. So I'm seeding the thought now so you can think about it if you're an internal processor need a moment to collect your thoughts. Uh, again, we'll probably have people trickling in, so be hospitable and, uh, and uh, wave people in and give them a seat. Um, uh, again, if you're just first time here tonight, uh, if you go out to your car at some point tonight, note that the doors will lock behind you. So uh, make make uh, a plan for getting back into the building. We won't have somebody manning the door the whole time. Uh, and again, the bathroom's just around the corner, out to your right, my left. Um, we are doing the same thing last week, and we'll see if, uh, whoops, wrong clicker. We'll see if um, we can, if it's not too unwieldy to do question answer. Uh, and if you want to submit questions anonymously, you can go to this website on your phone or if you have a laptop and uh, onlinequestions.org and you can put in that event number and submit questions anonymously if you'd like to do that. Uh, we'll try to get to some of those at the end of uh, tonight. We'll also do some live Q&R uh, for question and response and uh, see, where, see where that goes. So I've kind of curated some of those that have already been submitted. We'll try to uh, touch on as many of those as we can get to uh, tonight. So you guys good? Ready to jump in? All right. Covered a lot of ground last week. And as I uh, got to re-record the whole thing and stand in here by myself and, and talk to an empty room, it was great to be able to reflect and uh, and realize that I'm already kind of uh, amending some of those initial thoughts. So I, I gave the big uh, disclaimer last week that this is a work in progress, and I am um, evaluating my own thoughts even as they're coming out of my mouth. And so take everything with a grain of salt, run everything back through the scriptures. A couple of people have already asked, can we do some discussion groups on the heels of these three weeks? And so we may spin some of those up and just give an opportunity for some deeper reflection uh, and uh, conversation. Uh, but uh, in the meantime, you'll notice that tonight um, there will already be some differences between when I printed the slides on Friday and what you see on the screen uh, tonight. I'll try to point that out as we go. And one of those is on this slide. So I just want to recap real quick from week one, and uh, hopefully you've already been chatting about, oh, book giveaway. So um, I, I highlighted three books last week. You can see them in the slides if you missed last week. Uh, one is by Abigail Favalli uh, called The Genesis of Gender. She does a deep dive into Genesis 1 through 3, uh, among many other things. And so uh, fantastic book, great writer. Yes, Eden, you would like it. All right, hey, you get to get on the mic and give us a reflection from so week much. one. Yes. Hey, everyone. <laughs> um, okay, me and Allison were talking about how women, Satan didn't tempt women because they're weaker, but because they're influential. Great reflection, short and sweet. I like it. Hold on to that. Uh, embodied by Preston Sprinkle. Oh. 
I was already looking this direction, so I'll go with Faith. Sorry, Sonia. Sonia or Sonia? Sonia. 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 Okay, we'll try to get you next week. We got week three giveaway. All right, Faith, give us a reflection. Thank you. Um, I wrote it down, so I'm just going to read it. Um, that uh, Genesis 1 and 2 is the original um, intent for gender and sexuality. So, like, anytime you're wanting to figure that out, you just go back to God's original design. Awesome. Great. Yeah, Vincent. All right. Hey. Dad, sweeping in for the rescue there. Hey, go ahead and just... Uh, just hang on to that. If you could just slide, just uh, click it off, and then you can. Oh, that's right. All right, Sonia. Hey, she was ready, though. Okay, so honestly, um, I realized you're super smart, and there is a lot of things that you were saying that I was like, oh, my God, I don't even understand half the things that he's saying. And I told that to her, and she told me that this book was a really good book to help with okay. uh, definitions. And good. so when you said it was up for grabs, I wanted it so that I could read it for that. Okay, great, great. <laughs> yeah. Helpful reflection. That was one of my own self-evaluative uh, points last week when I went back through it. I was like, okay, we need to... We need to bring it down out of the clouds um, starting this week, and so hopefully we'll, we'll turn that corner. If you feel like you need a breather on uh, terms and yep. things like that. So we're actually using a lot that came from that book tonight uh, in terms of definitions and everything. So we're working our kind of a funnel. So we started very high level. Thank you. Started very high level last week. We'll kind of be in the middle of the funnel tonight. And then we'll look very practically next week at some kind of street-level questions and things that we're coming up against in culture. Uh, but to look back before we move forward, uh, a little recap from, from last week. Um, we see, again, we looked last week at Genesis 1 and 2 primarily as the kind of creational intent behind, uh, we use these words interchangeably, sex and gender. Um, the, the more, I think, uh, accurate semantic word would be sex, uh, not talking about the activity, but the, in, the intrinsic dignity of our sexed embodiment, our biology, as being more reflective of God's creational intent. And then this idea of gender as being more kind of psychological, and we'll talk about that tonight. Um, so we see primarily a difference in male and female sexed embodiment in the organization of the body, right? So male is organized in, in a way to initiate life outside the self, and female is organized in such a way as to gestate life within the self. And the main point here is that the main difference is in our biology. It's hard to uh, make a case against that. Um, in terms of the, the reflective nature of our bodies and what they reveal of God, um, and this is where this is going to be a little different than in your notes uh, based on some conversations uh, even today. Uh, male is analogous to God because God endows life from himself, from himself but stands apart from it. And we say that reveals God's transcendence. And again, that idea of transcendence is that God is outside of us. He is uh, apart from us. He is of a different nature than us. And he initiates life. He doesn't need us. We need him. Uh, but male is also analogous to humankind. This is new. This is just based on reflection from last week. Uh, as those endowed with agency. And that is, you see in the garden, God gives mankind the ability to name the animals, to co-create with him, if you will, to uh, subdue the earth, have dominion over it. 
Female is analogous to God because God indwells mankind and enables us to bear fruit, which reveals, reveals God's imminence, God's withness with us. And she's analogous to humankind as those whose power lies in our receptivity. So, so much about humankind is, is spoken of in the female in the scriptures as the bride of Christ, uh, as those who receive the word of God, it gestates in us, and, and then we produce life. And don't get hung up on all that. Those are some just kind of very high-level theological reflections about the, the imagery of male and female. Uh, the main point is together, male-female uh, represents, this duality represents unity and diversity, sameness and difference that leads to fruitfulness, co-equal value with unique sexual functions. And this is why it's so, the refrain in scripture of to maintain distinction between male and females because we represent this nature of God that is three in one uh, or unity in diversity. All right, we talked about how um, male and female were in some ways unequally affected by the consequences of the fall. Uh, and it's generally incumbent upon the male to maintain the balance. I'm not going to go into why. You can go back and review from last week uh, if that doesn't ring a bell. And while there may be some sex-specific biblical commands uh, specifically related to marriage in the church, the majority of God's commands are given to men and women alike not to act more like a man or a woman. So there, there aren't any commands in Scripture to be masculine or be feminine. The vast majority of the commands are to be like Jesus. Uh, and the stereotypes that uh, might fit the natural desires of many or most typically don't apply to all. They're descriptions of how many people behave, but not biblical prescriptions for all. Culture, uh, the culture in which we live, is narrow in its conception of sex and gender. The Bible is actually very expansive when it comes to sex traits and expression. However, the Bible calls Christians to maintain a distinction between male and female because of what, what we represent in our sex embodiment, that is, namely the Trinity. Okay, so uh, again, some high level theological thoughts on male and female from last week. So just wanted to look back before we look forward and, uh, and reflect there. And again, we'll try to get to some of the questions that that uh, stirred up at the end of uh, tonight. So again, just as a, a way of reminder, why does this matter? Sexual distinction is worshipful when understood rightly. So when we understand sexual distinction, it actually, it images God. We see an, an aspect of the nature of God which provokes worship or invokes worship in us. And it's key to spiritual formation. And uh, we'll talk more about that next week. Um, understanding the biblical narrative is key to fulfilling our purpose as followers of Jesus. So where uh, you see that Genesis 1 and 2 creational intent being referred back to multiple times throughout the scripture, it forms the basis for Paul's sexual morality in 1 Corinthians. It forms the basis for how Jesus interpreted the law uh, in Matthew 19 when it came to divorce and remarriage. And so understanding the, these key points of the biblical narrative is, is um, really important for us to fulfill our purposes, followers of Jesus, in terms of why are we even talking about this? Why are we taking this class? Uh, and then also, stereotypes that are presented as biblical, uh, biblical sex differences can actually be harmful for someone who doesn't fit the stereotype. We'll dive more in that tonight, uh, into that tonight and next week. Uh, because in our context today, if somebody felt that kind of dysphoria, that unease uh, 50, 100 years ago, 
typically it just manifested as insecurity or feeling like they're on the outside looking in. Today, there's a very powerful uh, undercurrent, a narrative that's filling that vacuum and saying, no, 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 it's because you're trans. It's you're, or you're a male born in a woman's body or whatever. And so we need to be sure we're not baptizing these pseudo-biblical ideas of masculinity and femininity uh, and sticking very closely to the scriptures um, to counteract the, the narrative that's, that's prominent in our culture. All right, so that's all on reflection. One last slide here on reflection. This was that kind of mental map, road map of some of the major philosophies uh, in uh, just philosophies, uh, generally speaking. And I, I switched out some of the language here, you know, uh, trying to address some of the, um, I don't want there to be a gap in, in understanding here. And so the, the ologies are now in smaller typeset, um, but we're talking about, Origins, reality, knowledge, purpose, humanity, sexuality, morality, and destiny. Those are the, the big kind of thought patterns that determine uh, how we live. And we talked about how these are like the operating system. Um, and like if you think of the iPhone, there's an operating system that very few of us on the planet would understand if we were to actually see it spelled out, the code that gives rise to the iPhone. Um, but the user, the user interface is the actual app, right? And, and we can navigate that, uh, but it runs on the backdrop of an operating system. And these ideas form the backdrop, the operating system, that our lived reality operates on. So when we talk about things like gender, you know, if you go on social media or you have a conversation with a coworker, they're gonna espouse a very, probably um, from the hip, a very uh, passionate, viewpoint on something like gender, um, that they, they understand to a degree. What they typically don't uh, understand is the operating system that's underneath that viewpoint on gender. Does that make sense? And so we need to be cognizant, aware of the operating system that's influencing us. Uh, and most of us live a, a syncretistic life, a blend of those two. Uh, so I'm not going to go through all those again, but I just wanted to highlight that to say that um, both of these can't be true simultaneously, right? What you believe in that, in that um, kind of that, that uh, background belief system is going to determine a lot of how we live. And so it's worth reflecting upon uh, how am I being influenced? What are the voices I'm listening to? What are, you know, if you have a friend or a coworker or a sibling or a child or, you know, evaluate what are the inputs because the inputs, the formative inputs are laying the track that is underneath kind of their lived experience. Okay. So we need to be aware and mindful of what's influencing us in terms of formation. All right. And then we talked about some implications for the various viewpoints that we hold. And the only one that we'll really zero in on tonight, and again, these are some big words and we'll break it down, um, but um, if you follow a secular belief system out to its logical conclusion, you get to something called psychological emotivism. And all that basically means is that what I think and feel is more substantive when it comes to reality than anything objectively outside of myself. Whereas in the Christian viewpoint, um, God determines reality or uh, the authority structures that God has instituted help determine reality over and above what I think or what I feel or what my experiences say is true or real. All right, so just a little teaser. That's where we're going for the first half of tonight. You guys good? Yeah. All right. Great, so let's dive in. Um, I could do... 
uh, three or four hours on the next two or three slides, uh, or the next five or six slides. Uh, we don't have time for that, so let me just recommend this book again. I mentioned it last week. It's actually two different books by Carl Truman. Same content. One is about 600 pages. One's about 230, so pick your poison. Um, the longer work is The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. The shorter work is Strange New World. And he basically just unpacks, how did we get to where we are today? How is the phrase, I'm a man trapped in a woman's body, not only intelligible today, but a moral imperative? And that's a relatively recent phenomenon. And how in the world did we get there? Um, and so he unpacks that at length in a deeply scholarly work, but written in such a way as the average person can digest it, especially the shorter work. So uh, know that that's out there. So we're really just going to fly through some philosophy here. Uh, it's important, but we're not going to be able to go to the depth that, um, that this warrants. Some, some key shifts started to take place in Western society during the Renaissance. The Renaissance, uh, a word meaning rebirth, uh, which is uh, an ironic term, but um, around the 14th to 16th century, depending upon what part of Europe you're talking about. And for our purposes, there were a couple of key shifts. When we go back to those mental maps, you know, the different ologies and the philosophies. And one was on the nature of reality. And as, uh, as process thinking started to emerge where... You know, previously, if, if, it, if, uh, if the thunder was rumbling outside, there was some kind of enchantment associated with that, that that was like the gods tussling in the heavens. Or, uh, you know, you see, um, well, I won't give that example. Anyway, you see different uh, associations that people make with kind of these, these big phenomenon. They, they were attributed to the gods, right? Well, you started to have this thought process that, wait a minute, these seem to be naturally kind of occurring phenomena and, and repeatable, and we can actually um, give it a name. That's this idea of nominalism. It means to be able to name something apart from just some supernatural intervention. So actually, thunder is when lightning strikes and there's an expansion you know, of hot air and it, it, it pushes out on the, they didn't know this at this time, but it pushes out on the atoms and it creates a you know, chain effect that we experience as thunder, right? So it's, it's not the gods. It's a very clearly natural event, right? So that was, that was beginning to take place on the nature of reality, this, this ontology. And you still had a, a blending. It was still supernatural, but now the kind of the natural world is beginning to be explored. There was also a shift when it came to knowledge. How do we know something to be true? So previously, within the Christian tradition, we believed in revelation. God had to reveal himself. Uh, almost every culture on the planet uh, operated within the realm of superstition, right? So you had this attribution of these supernatural events to the gods or God. Um, but that began to shift to this idea of empiricism, this observational science, this observational process where we can test and repeat and, and, and work out the details of what's actually going on here. Let me just state, this is actually a great uh, development in human history. We would not ride on airplanes today or have vaccines or life-saving medical devices if we hadn't gone through this process. But what we'll see is that we went really far in one direction and we left behind any attachment to the supernatural or this idea of revelation being a way in which we can actually come to know something. All right, so that covers a few centuries. Um, that leads to the age of uh, enlightenment and the scientific revolution coming on the heels of these kind of early ideas, um, which were kind of recycled 
from early Greek and Roman thought, but you get to the age of enlightenment and the scientific revolution, and uh, you, you have these guys in your notes, so I'm not going to go through each one uh, independently, um, but let me just read an excerpt from a book here. This is uh, very emblematic, very telling of what was going on at this time period, and this is about Rene Descartes in particular, who was a French philosopher. You can see there he lived at the beginning of the 17th century primarily. And I'll, I'll quote this from a book by Megan O'Giblin. And she says, One night while Descartes was at, alone at home, riding in his armchair near the fire, it occurred to him that there was no way to prove he was not dreaming. It had happened before that he was convinced he was in that very spot, quote, dressed and seated near the fire, whilst in reality I was lying undressed in bed. This realization set off a, spir a spiral of more terrors. What if an evil genius was manipulating his senses so he saw an external world when in truth there was nothing? So relentless were his doubts that he considered he might even be deceived about the seemingly self-evident truths of mathematics and geometry. That, it, that, quote, I too go wrong every time I add two and three or count the size of a square or in some even simpler matter. Simpler matter. The only way he could rule out these possibilities, he decided, was to systematically doubt everything he'd ever taken for granted, searching for the one solid foundation upon which to build a philosophy. He discovered this only after stumbling on a paradox when considering the possibility that he might not exist at all. The proposition, I am not thinking, was a logical contradiction since the idea itself was being entertained by a thinking subject. Descartes came out of the dark night of the soul, convinced that the only thing he could trust was consciousness itself. Listen to that sentence again, because this is going to get you a lot of mileage of understanding where we are today. He came out of the dark night of the soul, convinced the only thing he could trust was consciousness itself. So he came up with the famous statement, I think, therefore I am. And this statement affirmed interior first-person experience as the foundation of reality. Think about that. He affirmed that the interior first-person experience was the foundation of reality. Right now, that's going to stand in stark contrast to a distinctly Judeo-Christian worldview, where the foundation of our reality is not our first-person experience, but what? Right? The existence of God, his thoughts about reality, his statements, his words, his truth, the revelation of God in the person of Jesus Christ. Um, Descartes was a Christian of sorts, and, and uh, was wrestling, wrestling out, though, these implications of the age in which he lived, and these, these were some of the propositions that he came up with. And so you can see kind of an evolution of thought through um, the 20th century, but we will just camp here for a second and summarize those three pages of those different faces that you see. And again, you can go back and read them individually if you're interested in that. But some of the outcomes coming into the late 19th century of thinkers like Rene Descartes, and here's some propositions and some kind of conclusions based on their thinking. The nature of physical things as they are is unknowable to us. That would be like Immanuel Kant. Therefore, my interior first-person experience is the foundation of reality, like what Descartes came up with. Uh, there's nothing exceptional about human beings. We are just animals. Does that sound familiar to anybody? Any thinkers that come to mind? Darwin, right. Charles Darwin, among many others. Um, therefore, as animals, we are primarily the sum of our impulses, the sexual appetite chief among those. That would be Freud, among others. Humans are born a blank slate. That would be John Locke and, and Jean-Jacques Rousseau. But we are corrupted by society. There's no in, in original sin. 
humans are relatively we're good and uh, intrinsically. Um, any evil that you see is imposed from the outside. It does not come from the inside. Uh, therefore, as individuals, we are charged with the great task of self-creation, and any influence, like the family, that impinges on self-creation is oppressive. That would be people like Friedrich Nietzsche. Um, so sexual oppression is political oppression. That would be Marx, Hegel, and then into the 20th century with the Frankfurt School of Philosophy with Herbert Marcuse and, uh, and others. And there is no God, no objective truth, no narratives that give ultimate meaning. That would be like Jean-Paul Sartre uh, and Michel Foucault in the 20th century. Therefore, language is all we have. It becomes a tool of power that creates reality because there's nothing external to us that creates reality. All right, don't get lost in the weeds there. The main point is that all of that leads to this in the 20th century, the late 20th century, and into the 21st century to where we are today. And that is the underlying kind of philosophical current today, there's many of them, but this is one of them, and it's most relevant to our conversation tonight, is this idea of psychological emotivism, where my internal thoughts and feelings are more determinative, determinative of reality than any external source of authority like family, religion, society, or even my own body. All right, so we have stripped away this kind of subjective internal first-person experience from anything objective outside of myself that would say this is true. If what I think and feel doesn't align with something external, um, then what I think and feel trumps whatever is external that is telling me that's reality. Does that make sense? Now, there are limits to this. It's selectively imposed, but this is generally the line of reasoning that's used when it comes to things like sexuality and gender. All right, so uh, again, we won't be able to go through this in detail, but you get to um, some key feminist thinkers that kind of um, overlay some thoughts on gender in particular on top of this ideology, this psychological emotivism. Let me just read a quote by Margaret Sanger, who founded what, uh, anybody know? Planned Parenthood. It wasn't called that when she founded it, but it became Planned Parenthood. And she hated women, by the way. Uh, if you read her works, um, she hated women. Uh, she hated being a woman. Uh, but she said this, uh, it, one of her quotes. She has some chilling quotes. If you ever read her work, she was a very disturbed individual. She said, quote, Woman has, through her reproductive ability, founded and perpetuated the tyrannies of the earth and must free, her, free herself from the chains of her own reproductivity. Uh, Sanger sought to rid the earth of, of humans unfit to share it with her. Those, quote, meaningless, aimless lives which cram this world of ours, yet who have done absolutely nothing to advance the race one iota. Their lives are hopeless repetitions. Such humans clog up the path, drain up the energies and resources of this little earth. And so she was very much a proponent of eugenics, the systematic eradication of life that she deemed unfit to live. All right, so not a happy... Not a happy thought. Um, you have other thinkers in there, uh, Simone de Beauvoir and Betty Friedan and Judith Butler, among others. Um, and not all these, I, I singled out Margaret Sanger. Uh, again, we said it last week, but um, Favali points out that feminism rightly discerns something's amiss, right? Not all feminist thinking or 
all these different philosophies are fundamentally evil or misguided. Um, there's, a, there's a right discernment. Something is amiss, but the, the appropriation of power to deal with the misappropriation of power is, is uh, treating the problem with more of the problem. We talked about that last week. All right, again, we don't have time to fully unpack feminist ideology from the 20th century. But what we get, kind of taking all of this kind of philosophical development from the last 400 years, is a perfect storm to describe in part where we are today and how we got here. All right, now we're gonna shift into specifically sex and gender here for the remainder of the time. And we'll get very practical here in a second. But before the mid 20th century, the idea of gender was largely used um, to describe linguistic conventions. So if you've ever learned like Spanish or some of the Romance languages, you have uh, female and male words like el baño and you know whatever, uh, la puerta. And I don't know why certain words were considered male and some were considered female. But this idea of gender didn't apply to humans as much as it did linguistic con conventions. So before the, about the 1950s, when you talked about sexuality, that it was just generally considered to be differences in the biological sexes. All right. Um, now, there was wide, widespread contraceptive use in the early uh, half of the 20th century, uh, in part uh, promoted by Margaret Sanger and others. And it pushed reproductivity to the background. All right. So now you had this kind of modern phenomenon where sex became uh, an activity that was primarily recreational. This was the first time in human history. Sex had always carried with it the, the possibility of, of uh, and there, was, there were forms of contraception before this, don't get me wrong, but the widespread, socially acceptable use of contraception was a modern phenomenon. And it stripped away this idea of reproductivity from sexual activity. So if sex is not primarily... Um, you know, to be uh, enjoyed within the context of marriage, if the output was not, um, was not reproduction, then what is sex? And in this vacuum, the door opens for sex to be understood in primarily secondary sexual characteristics. And this is really important. So now when people think of sex, they don't think of primarily biological reproductive functions. They think of other things like uh, clothing and hairstyles and body features and body shape and voice pitch and facial hair and these other things that are thought of to represent what it means to be sexual. And of course, the sexual activity, which is a whole different, different category. Now at the same time, the mind is being decoupled from the body in ways that we were just talking about and the mind is now authoritative. At the same time, what it means to be human is that we are primarily sexual animals. At the same time, we have rapid technological advances that eliminate workplace distinctions, make it possible to edit our secondary sex characteristics, initially through um, kind of the, the leveling of the playing field with work, but later physical characteristics. At the same time, gender roles are being redefined, and as the times progress, and again, not all this is, is necessarily bad. Some of this was really good and really needed. But you have all this kind of swirling together, and gender emerges as a psychological reality that borrows from the biological, but mainly traffics in notions of, of social expectations and internal experiences. And the whole point, if you get anything out of the last 15 minutes, is that now we have a distinct separation of sex as biological and gender as psychological. This is a modern phenomenon. You don't see this just about anywhere in the world before the 1950s and 60s, where you have this kind of distinct, these distinct two categories. Now, if you read any literature today, 
it's not that cookie cutter clean. These are malleable terms and depending on who you ask. But generally speaking, if you kind of step way back, this, this picture starts to emerge like pointillism or, you know, um, uh, or if you're too close to something you can't see. But when you step way back, you see that generally speaking, what we're talking about when we talk about gender is something that's psychological. All right, now let's get to some definitions. This is to uh, the point that uh, Preston Sprinkle makes um, in his books. <clears throat> All right, so uh, actually, you know what? Before we do, turn to somebody. Top takeaway from the, kind of the philosophical evolution to get us to where we are. Take 30 seconds, turn to somebody, ready to go. Top takeaway so far. All right, hey, before we dive into some definitions, let me pause. And just state again from, uh, I said this the first week, but I did not say this yet tonight. Uh, I know this is a very academic approach. Uh, I'm approaching this this way because my senses in this room, largely these, this is a group of people who are looking for um, some empowerment to how do I think about this? And I've got lo loved ones and friends and want to be able to meet some of those challenges and love and, and care for people. If I was talking to a room that was full of people who were struggling with transgender identity, and that was the primary audience, this would be a very different talk. Um, so this is, uh, we're talking about people ultimately, not ideas. Um, and this topic needs to be approached with tremendous care, concern, empathy. Um, and we'll talk primarily about that next week. Um, I just want to pause and say that again, that I know we're, we're going just kind of straight into some of the nuts and bolts. Uh, but ultimately, we're talking about people. How do, and people are extremely complex. And there's no one size fits all. Um, and these ideas are to help equip us to love well um, in a nuanced uh, circumstance the people that are in our lives, not to win arguments, not to uh, prove a point. And uh, let me just tell a quick story um, before we dive into some definitions here. So I, by way of, of illustration to how complex this can get, I uh, was in my office a few years ago. I got a phone call from a friend of mine who was pastoring a church uh, in a city out west. Uh, he is not part of Antioch, uh, but was leading a discipleship group, and we've been friends for a long time. And he was like, hey, uh, can I ask you a question? This one's kind of a doozy, and I don't quite know how to navigate this. I said, sure. He said, I've had this guys group for a couple of years. These are some of my top guys. This was the pastor of the church. He's some of my top guys, some of my most fruitful disciples of Jesus. And we, we've gone really deep and we've shared a lot of life together. And uh, one of my guys just pulled me aside um, a few days ago and was real nervous. And it took him a while to kind of work up the guts to say what he wanted to say. He said, hey, um, friend, um, uh, you're going to be the only person who knows this outside of my parents, but... I'm actually biologically female. I was born a woman, and this person had gone through the full kind of hormone uh, transition and then, and then sex reassignment uh, surgeries, and was very convincingly presenting as a male. And, uh, and my friend was like, this person uh, is a fruitful disciple of Jesus. I've thought this person was male for the past couple of years. He was actually coaching this guy on how to pursue a woman, because uh, this person wanted to get married to a woman as, anyway, just gets complex. 
serving in the kids' ministry and, and very confident and secure in their identity as a male and was just bringing, in, bringing this pastor in not to say I need help to realign with my biological uh, uh, sex from birth, uh, but just wanted you to know this is who I am. I felt like I was keeping you in the dark, and I'm excited to keep going on this journey together. So what do you do, right, as a pastor? So just sharing that as an anecdote to say this, every situation, every circumstance, every person is a different, uh, is a different conversation. If you've met one person with sexual issues, we, you've met one person with sexual, sexual issues. And so uh, you might be asking, what did he do? And maybe we'll talk about that next week. Um, getting into the practical considerations. Yeah, get you to come back next week. All right, so some definitions. When we talk about sex, uh, we're talking about, for the purposes of this class, not the activity of procreation, but the biological distinction. So this is, I just literally pulled this with a couple of amendments from Webster's. Uh, they have updated their definitions in recent years, so I had to revert back to some older definitions. But sex is the male or female division of a species, pretty straightforward, especially as differentiated with reference to the reproductive functions. Another definition was the sum of the structural and functional differences by which male and female are distinguished. All right, so in the medical community today, so 60 years ago, um, there was a conundrum when a child was born with ambiguous sexual characteristics, um, external uh, genitalia or other physical characteristics that were ambiguous. And so what was generally practiced then was a somewhat arbitrary decision to kind of force the infant one way or the other, kind of force through surgery towards uh, female or force through surgery towards male that was largely dependent on just one distinction here, and that's phenotype, and that's the external um, sexual anatomy, the penis, the vagina. Um, however, today, there are uh, five kind of considerations that the medical community would make if somebody was born with some kind of ambiguous sexual um, uh, physical traits, all right? And this is how, in the medical community, they will determine if somebody is male or female for health purposes. Um, that's karyotype, so that's chromosomal differences, um, just embedded in our DNA. You have phenotype, that's the external sexual anatomy again. You have gonads, which are internal reproductive organs that produce gametes. Gamete is sperm or ovum, ovum so this would be the ovaries or the testicles. Uh, you have additional internal reproductive structures that uh, assist in reproductivity. That would be the uterus in women, for example, the prostate gland in men, and the endocrine system uh, that produces hormones that lead to secondary sex characteristics, uh, estrogen in women, uh, testosterone in men. All right, so they're going to look at all five of those um, taken together to make a, determine, a determination of somebody's male or female. And we will get into um, what's kind of commonly known as intersex conditions. Some of you have asked that question uh, way long time ago. It was known as hermaphrodites, people who, who show um, both male and female characteristics, and we'll get into that. But know that based on these five characterizations, uh, there is not one single case on planet Earth to date where somebody is fully ambiguously uh, either male or female when, t when all five of these um, medical considerations are taken together. Okay, we'll come back to that. All right, when we talk about gender, we're talking about primarily the psychological, social, and cultural aspects of being male or female. 
All right, so that's generally in the literature broken down into two different categories. That would be gender role, which is primarily um, uh, external. So that would be social and cultural aspects of being male or female. And we talked a lot about that last week, how stereotypes aren't necessarily bad. Uh, they're present in every culture, and uh, they're helpful as, uh, in, in some ways uh, in terms of maintaining distinction, as long as, again, we don't box people in outside of biblical boundaries. Um, these seem to exist because of both nature and nurture. You know, so why do boys like trucks and girls like dolls? Is that socially conditioned? Is that internally programmed? Uh, the, 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 uh, the studies are inconsistent. Most would say it's some combination of both. Um, generally, gender roles are based on generalities and not absolutes. So you have girls that like playing with trucks and boys that like playing with dolls. It doesn't necessarily mean that they are uh, transgender or a boy trapped in a girl's body or vice versa. All right, then you have gender identity. And this is where it gets really sticky. And this is where a lot of the conversation happens today when it comes to things like gender. This is the psychological aspect of being male and female. All right, so there are a lot of different theories out there, and if you start reading, you start falling down a rabbit hole that gets very deep and very twisted very fast, and it's really hard to untangle and present in a succinct way in this, in this course. But generally speaking, you have a few different um, understandings of what it means to have uh, a, a gender identity that's distinct from my biological sexuality. You hear talk of the male brain and the female body or the, or the female brain and the male body. Um, and there's a lot of literature out there on brain sex theory. That's what that's called. Uh, it's an incomplete science. Things like neuroplasticity obscure the results. Don't worry if you don't understand the terms. Just know that basically there, it'd be, somebody would be hard-pressed to make a case that I have a male brain and I was born in a female body. The, the science does not yet support that notion. There are observed differences in male brains versus female brains, but they, all the language is based on generalities, not absolutes. So any research you read, you're going to find terms like are more likely or most or tend to, or comparatively more activity, like in certain parts of the brain over others, uh, or proportionally more activity, or tends to be, or less true. Again, researchers have not yet found a definitive universal trait in a male brain over a female brain, where somebody could make a case that I distinctly have a biological male brain and was born in a female body. Even if there were universal observations, I would ask the question, why would brain anatomy trump reproductive function, since that's the primary, the primary uh, purpose for sexual distinction throughout the ages? But that's a uh, different conversation. All right, then you have a, 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 a strain of thought that says, I'm a female soul in a male body, or I'm a male soul in a female body. That starts to get very metaphysical, and when you kind of press for definitions, people are, are, have a difficult time articulating what they mean. And actually what tends to start happening is language is, is being used that's generally laid on the track of cultural stereotypes. Well, I'm, I'm a female soul because I'm, I'm male, but I'm a female soul because I like to cook, and I like to shop, and I like to... And I would say, where did you get that notion that that's distinctly female? Um, or I'm a male soul, but I'm trapped in a woman's body because I like, I like trucks and, and sports and everything else. And I would say, where did you get that notion that that's distinctly male? 
So this idea of, of having this male or female soul, if you really press, typically what somebody's trying to articulate is I don't fit in the box. I don't fit in the cultural box of what my family growing up or what my church or what society generally tends to assume is male or female. I identify more with the feminine as it's culturally projected or I identify more with the male as it's culturally projected. Uh, some might get a little bit more metaphysical than that, and I would just say that um, you're gonna gonna be banging your head up against the wall to have try to have a, a conversation with somebody who's just convinced that they have some soul that's just distinctly female. And I would say, what is that? Like, what does it mean to have a female soul? Like, how do you know your soul is female? What language could you possibly use? to describe a female soul. Nevertheless, that's some of the language that's being used. But again, typically, what's going to happen is you're going to start hearing um, uh, language that's, that's talking about stereotypes. And that's where I would argue that um, we have in part done a disservice um, throughout the ages by, um, by crafting these kind of biblical stereotypes around male and female or just perpetuating cultural stereotypes when somebody is an outlier and we've now given them only one other option uh, or at least culture has swept in with that other option. Is that making sense? Okay, so we'll keep going here on this idea. Um, let me just touch briefly. It doesn't look brief. Um, <laughs> but... If you get into any conversation about transgenderism, one of the first um, rebuttals or the aha gotchas is going to be about intersex conditions or, again, hermaphroditic uh, conditions. And the actual term is not intersex. That's more of kind of street slang. Um, the actual turn, term is congenital conditions of sexual development. Even, it's kind of tricky. Language uh, is power in some ways. And um, note when people are using, uh, we'll talk about this next week, but when people are using, um, anytime you get in a conversation about this, I always ask for, what do you mean by that? Define that for me. Um, intersex is a very clever term that, I don't know who came up with it, but I know who's perpetuating it, because it, it has this connotation that there's this spectrum of sexuality. But the actual term is congenital conditions of sexual development. Intersex is not a medical term. That's street slang, and it's referring to these conditions. So if somebody's like, hey, what about intersex people? I would say, what do you mean by that? When you say intersex, there are dozens of different congenital conditions, and most of them do not refer to ambiguous sexuality. So which ones are you referring to? And you'll likely get a, a blank stare in response. Uh, because they're just, I say they, I hate, it's not an us, them. Um, the, 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 there are talking points that you will come up against when you start trying to really have conversations with people about transgenderism, and this is one of them. So sex is readily recognizable at birth for nearly 100% of the population. You see that 99.98, and this is taken from just about any medical journal. This is very easily findable uh, research. For the 0.02% of people with CCSDs, the reality of sex is still present, but is more carefully discerned. Remember back to those five medical, uh, evalu those, those medical considerations when determining male and female sexuality. Uh, intersex does not mean neither male nor female. Uh, there are more than 16 different common conditions that are classified as intersex or CCSDs. And most of them include atypical features in a, a person's sex chromosomes, reproductive organs, or anatom anatomical sex. 
Some of the more common conditions, but which rarely lead to an ambiguously sexed person, um, this late-onset congenital adrenal hyperplasia is the most common one. That's 88% of all quote-unquote intersex individuals, which generally just results in a slightly enlarged clitoris in females or a thinning scalp in males, often infertility in both. Most people with loca don't know that they have it. All right, so it goes undetected in most people's uh, lives for their lifetime, but this is 88% of all those with CCSD conditions. Uh, you also have Klinefelter syndrome, which is the, kind of the second, the second most common, uh, can lead to smaller testicles, an increase in tissue in the chest, and infertility. Uh, but again, is unambiguously sexed male or female. You guys tracking with me? I know we're getting way down into the weeds here now. Um, approximately 99% of, so this is, 99% of the 0.02%, you guys tracking with the math there? 99% of the 0.02% of people who have these conditions are unambiguously male or female. There's never a consideration or a question from the medical community. So what about the 1% of the 1%? All right, so these are some less, extremely less common situations. You have something called congenital adrenal hyperplasia. So not the late onset, but the full congenital adrenal hyperplasia. And that's the presence of a Y chromosome, so it would be male, but the body has a complete inability for the cell to respond to testosterone due to a lack of a receptor. So appears unambiguously, unambiguously female, all right? So actually, if you really start reading the, um, the literature, people with these conditions hate being used as political fodder by either side, by the way. This, is, this would be a very compassionate-inducing um, condition to have, right? So neither side should point to somebody with this condition and say, see, see, this is somebody that has to wrestle with a sexual condition for their, their, their whole lives, who are created in the image of God, who are... Um, completely redeemable because of Jesus' death on the cross and are no different than anybody else that is born with a different chromosomal condition or hormonal condition and so on. At the same time, um, they are still, uh, the medical community would say they are still, if they uh, are bold enough to now uh, in today's day and age, would still say that somebody with congenital adrenal hyperplasia uh, is still male biologically, even though there's something wrong with their cell's ability to receive testosterone, even though their secondary sexual characteristics present as female. Does that make sense? The most rare and the most ambiguous is something called ovotestes. Only 500 known cases on the planet, um, but it is possible to have both XX and XY chromosome, chromosomes to be both fully male and fully female chromosomally and in terms of anatomy. But here's the kicker, and I thought this was fascinating. It's almost like God just like programmed in a trump card here. Even though they, they produce both anatomy and, um, and, and both chromosome sets, they're still only able to produce one or the other gamete, only sperm or only eggs, and the medical community does not know why. Isn't that fascinating? So you could be completely, and there's only 500 known individuals, completely ambiguously sexed with both sexual sets of characteristics, but your body will still only produce one or the other gamete. I just think that's fascinating. 
And I don't cite this to, again, say this is a fodder and it come back against the trans agenda. These are real people with real uh, medical conditions. And, uh, and actually, uh, Favali, I wish we had time. She has a, a beautiful section on how um, intersex people, these, these more severe CCSDs, image God uh, and how uh, Jesus himself people scorned and they were, you know, he was an outsider and, and uh, so on and so forth. It's a beautiful section. But it is... Um, it's, it's shifting sand, or it's a, it's a weak argument for somebody to say, because, because there are intersex people, um, then there's a spectrum of gender, and you can be kind of a blend or some third option that is neither male nor female, that is not based on the actual uh, science that's out there regarding intersex individuals. Um, Humans differ in how they are male and female, but this doesn't mean sex categories exist in addition to male and female. Uh, it does not mean they constitute something other than male or female. We just don't find an alternative. All right? Uh, Jesus actually addresses this in Matthew 19 and in part. You guys hanging with me? All right, we're, gonna, we're trying to land the plane. Um, uh, we don't have time to get into the nuts and bolts. A beautiful passage, verse 12, uh, he, he talks about, he's, he's in a context of divorce and, and he's basically given them a very hard teaching because it was no fault divorce uh, at that time. And he's like, actually, it's not. And they're like, whoa, then we probably shouldn't get married. And he's like, well, this is my paraphrase. Um, <laughs> he's like, yeah, not everyone can receive that, but only to those whom it is given. Um, as if it's like this gift to, uh, to be given the, the, the pathway of celibacy. And let me just say, I'm stating this as a married man, so I have no authority to stand up here and state this, but I am um, reflecting back to what Jesus said on the topic, who was, was himself a single celibate man. Um, he says, for there are eunuchs, and there's all this on what is a eunuch, um, uh, I don't have time to go into it. Basically, they they were, uh, at that time, in Greco-Roman society, they were men who lacked secondary sex characteristics, such as a deep voice or facial hair because they'd been castrated, or they were simply too culturally feminine to be men, or they had no sexual desire, and so on. Generally speaking, um, they were infertile men who were kind of ex, uh, excommunicated from male society. He says there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, so most scholars think that's some kind of like nod towards those CCSDs, that this has been a congenital um, uh, condition for many thousands of years. There are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. That was a common practice in, in the court uh, where or uh, wealthy uh, landowners would castrate their slave boys so that they weren't a threat to uh, the, the females in the property or uh, for their own sexual pleasure, which is just dark and gross. And, um, and then there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. And most scholars think what he's talking about there is a, uh, a conscientious kind of vow to celibacy, either um, um, for, for a number of reasons. The point is, Jesus has a high view of singlehood. He has a high view and, a, and was the first religious teacher to this point that, um, that esteemed people with, with what we might call intersex conditions or who had been kind of um, uh, kicked out of male society or society because of their ambiguous expression of sexuality. Jesus had a very expansive 
um, uh, invitation for for those people into his kingdom. All right. So, um, yeah, the eunuch passage, this passage calls us to a broader biblical vision of what it means to be a man or a woman, reminding us we don't need to mimic the cultural scripts. And Jesus challenges our low view of singleness in American culture in this passage. All right. Uh, how many more? Yeah, we're getting, we're getting close. All right. So a few more definitions. <laughs> Uh, a few more. So when, we, when it comes to this topic of transgender, just note that that's an umbrella term. That's all you need to know. Uh, every single person you ask to define it's going to give you a different definition. That's all that that's there for. Um, you start getting into, I mean, if you look at Princeton or Stanford's guide on gender uh, terms, uh, it's dozens of pages now. And you're going to come up against uh, dozens and dozens and dozens of terms. And they change every few weeks. So uh, I, I wouldn't spin my wheels trying to, you know, when it comes to non-binary, genderqueer, gender fluid, pangender, and the list um, is ever expansive. Um, refers to a wide range of gender identities, that is not biological sex, that are not exclusively male or female. This idea of gender dysphoria, that, ter that term dysphoria is when people feel an internal sense of distress that their perceived gender doesn't match their biological sex. All right, again, these are real people suffering uh, real angst. And so we're, we're not minimizing this by just kind of going through definitions here. And again, this will be the main content of next week. When we talk about transition, you'll hear that term a lot. That's the term that's preferred for sex change. And there are three general levels of somebody transitioning. The first and most common is social. So this is somebody uh, who chooses to present as the opposite sex, uh, typically through um, uh, dress, hair, uh, changing names, pronouns, and so on. Uh, you have hormonal transitions where somebody starts to, to uh, take cross-sex uh, hormone therapy, so uh, girls taking uh, testosterone uh, or vice versa. Uh, and then you have surgical, uh, known as confirmation, gender confirmation surgery. Don't you love the terminology? Um, uh, anyway, um, and obviously these are progressively more permanent uh, in the way that these uh, kind of cascade on themselves, right? So surgical transitions could include, for girls, most commonly a double mastectomy, a hysterectomy, an ovariectomy, or phalloplasty. So this is the construction of a penis, though that is quite rare uh, for biological females. For the males, it could be the construction of a vulva and vagina in place of a penis and testes, which is largely, it's not functioning. It's not functional. It's largely cosmetic, uh, along with breast implants or other cosmetic changes. All right. Uh, there is a big wave of detransitioning happening now, especially there's a lot of literature out in, in England. Uh, they're about 20 years ahead of us. And so there are girls who did this at 13, 14, 15 are now in their mid-30s, and they're suing these um, medical practices that allowed them to do this at such a young age uh, and, and ruin their lives. Um, but there is, is quite a wave of detransitioning because the, you know, the, the common, and again, we'll get into this next week, but the common reasons that people transition are largely emotional, and they find that the transition doesn't um, heal the deep emotional wounding. Uh, often it, there's a, a brief reprieve, uh, but the, what the, whatever the deeper issues were resurfaced and typically um, uh, worse than before. And so there's a lot of detransitioning happening. All right, you see some other definitions there you can read later if you're curious. Uh, this is some of the, um, 
You'll see uh, in um, public school systems now, I don't know about here in Waco, but I know like Seattle uses these um, images in their sex education uh, starting in kindergarten. Um, kindergarten through third grade, Seattle has a very well-defined, it's publicized, you can go on their website and see exactly what they're teaching starting in kindergarten. And it leads up to in third grade, they have a gender reveal day where it's a big celebration, it's like field day, and every kid gets to, to reveal to their peers what gender they are after four years of education. And they'll use uh, images like this one, that you are a gender unicorn, right? It's a mix and match. Remember, this is the, the decoupling of gender, this psychological reality from my biological sex. And so you've got, again, that gender identity, that internal sense, how I present myself externally, my sex assigned at birth. But then you have this whole idea of physical attraction, which is lumped into sexuality as well, uh, and emotional attraction. And all five of those can be kind of mix and matched, like Build-A-Bear, uh, depending upon the need of the day. And again, I'm not saying that to trivialize it. Um, so, you, you know, a few, uh, a few uh, kind of self-distinctions that I found out there. Uh, somebody could be genderqueer bisexual or non-binary demiflux transsexual. Uh, you could simply be omni or pangender, which is just all of them at any given time. I am every possible gender. And again, this, this ideology is steeped in 300 years of development where the internal subjective first-person experience is, uh, is authoritative over and above any other objective external source of truth. All right, here's another one. Um, they're cute, they're very attractive to kids, right? You got the genderbred person, it's the same thing. It's the same thing as the gender unicorn has these kind of five different uh, possible locations of, of gender, notions of gender. All right, so why are people, and there is a, uh, a wave right now, if you look at the, the numbers, especially among teen girls, that's where it's most prominent of girls transitioning. Um, either socially, uh, hormonally, or surgically. And there's a lot of reasons, and I'm not, I'm not boiling it down to just these four, but as I've done the studies, these four rise to the top in terms of the most common that are referred to in the studies that have been done as to why, um, historically, the trans world was largely uh, relegated to men who um, presented as transsexual uh, for uh, just a couple of reasons we won't get into tonight, but primarily just sexual preference. Um, now it is much more an internal sense of identity uh, because of what we talked about in the first half. Um, but the, the, the J curve and the number of girls that are transitioning uh, is largely attributed to these four factors. So you have the worldview factor, which is just everything we've just talked about. There is a very strong narrative that is becoming normalized in the schools. It says if you don't, and there was actually, I didn't put it in here, but they, um, some schools use this spectrum. It goes from zero to 10, and at zero, you're G.I. Joe, and at 10, you're Barbie, and they have the kids kind of place, like, where are you on this spectrum from G.I. Joe to Barbie, which is such a flagrant misappropriation of gender stereotypes that it's shocking that this is being done in schools. But So you have this worldview factor that this is gen your gender is completely distinct from your biological sexuality, um, and that is, that is mainstream. If you watch any Disney movie today, you're going to see the virtue signaling in just about every um, commercial and show and film. Um, and it's reinforcing this ideology. My kids watch Disney movies, but 
we are having these conversations, we'll even pause it. Hey, did you catch that? That was a sneaky little, uh, little drop there. Um, and we'll talk about it. Just so, um, anyway, talk about that next week. All right, the pornography factor is pretty self-evident. Should be just the... Um, uh, girls are seeing what is happening in the world of pornography. Uh, thankfully, it has not been part of my world for 17 years now, but I understand that it's extremely violent now, the, the pornography that's available to kids. And they're seeing women uh, uh, abused and objectified, and they don't want any part of that. So as they start to develop those secondary sex characteristics, they're like, I don't want to be the subject of abuse. Um, and so cut off the breasts, present as a male. Male is more powerful. It's held up as the standard in society. And I want to align that way. Uh, the trauma factor, just about every, no, I don't want to say that. In the research that I read, there was, there was a high correlation of previous sexual trauma related to um, people transitioning. That's shifting as the pornography factor is outpacing the trauma factor. Um, but sexual abuse and these other things, again, it's I will never be violated that way again, so I'm going to become powerful, powerful as masculine, uh, and so on. And the internet factor, you have this ability to, to fully self-create in the realm of the internet. Uh, it's completely anonymized, and I can be whomever I want. I can build my avatar in whatever way that I want, and that ideology is, again, further reinforcing this decoupling of self from body. All right, uh, last slide. The clinical reality. This is insane. So if there are any lawmakers in here and clinicians, I am not generally one that is kind of trumpeting at the level of society and lawmaking, but this one was shocking to, uh, to watch interviews of various clinicians. Right now, the clinical reality, if a girl or a boy comes into a clinic as young as 13 in most states, um, the diagnostic process, the typical diagnostic process is not allowed if they start talking about gender issues. So by way of comparison, there's a condition uh, called Body Integrity Identity Disorder, BIID. It's a well-known psychological condition where somebody, it's rare, but somebody could come in uh, wanting to amputate their arm or their hand or their leg because they, they feel disassociated from it. And the diagnostic process for the clinician is to say, let's explore mental health first before we amputate a part of your body, right? It's common sense. But if a girl comes in and wants to amputate both of her breasts, they are not allowed to explore mental health um, as part of the diagnostic process. They are supposed to accept the self-diagnosis of a 13, 14, 15, 16-year-old child. In Oregon, that's now legal apart from parental consent. And in fact, if a parent intervenes in the process, they can be fined. The child can be removed uh, from the home for uh, hate speech and, and so on. Um, so this, that is insane. I'm just going to say that in front of the camera. Uh, there is something fundamentally patently wrong with that process. Uh, the only path right now in clinical, uh, the clinical process is, uh, is gender affirmation. You even saw that in the verbiage of the gender confirmation surgery, the gender affirmation surgery. And strangely, it's positively called affirmation to get your body to align with your mind. It's negatively called conversion to get your mind to align with your body. 
just something to ponder and a question to ask for somebody who's advocating for self-diagnosis of 13-year-olds. Why would it be illegal? Why could I lose my license as a clinician to help my client have their mind realigned to what is more static and real and right in front of us in their body uh, as opposed to getting their body to align with their mind, which is constantly shifting, uh, shifting sand? All right. We encouraged... That's why we started with a biblical vision uh, for sex and gender. This is the secular vision for sex and gender. And next week, we'll talk about what in the world do we, where do we go from here? But this is kind of the landscape that is um, that is the, land, the, the world that we're living in, at least here in the West right now. So before we, I, I will address some of the questions that people did online, but I'm tired of listening to myself talk, and I'm sure you are as well. So any live questions, um, and you see there's some, some questions for reflection, and would, would uh, encourage you to take a look at those over the next week or so, as we'll start with another 10 minutes of reflection at the beginning of next class. But yes. Hi. Um, so I have a friend. Um, I, guess, I guess I've known her about eight, ten years, something like that, Um, and she has multiple children, one of which um, was born, uh, I guess, intersex, or however the correct terminology is for that, um, where, like, everything on the inside is female, but everything on the outside is male, and as the child grows older, um, they become an adult and that kind of thing, we'll probably end up having, developing breasts and all of that, so... Like, everything genetically is female, but the child has, like, outer male parts, if that makes sense. Anyway, um, because of this, um, my friend has chosen to raise all of her children as, like, gender neutral and is choosing to let them decide, like, from day to day, do you feel like a boy today? Okay, you can dress up in the boy clothes. Do you feel like a girl today? You can dress up in the girl clothes. And... um, it's, uh, she regularly asks me questions about what I believe as a Christian. She actually was a Christian, but then like deconstructed that term. I hate that term, but she kind of like, she, she has kind of formed her own idea of God actually because of her child and has, she has this full belief that because men and women were both made in God's image, that God has both male and female parts and that God chose to identify as a male just while he was on earth and that like yeah it's a whole thing so it's something we talk about semi-regularly and I pray with her and everything but she she refers when she prays and stuff she uh interchanges like mother god or father god and um will refer to God as a she and a her and that kind of thing. And it's um, it's hard to know exactly the best way to help her because I, I do see where she's coming from with having a child with these conditions and how do they, like letting them choose when they're an adult if they want to be male or female because of that specific condition. But do you have any tips or <laughs> anything on what I should do as someone who's been talking with her about what I believe for years and... Yeah, I don't know what to do. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot there. I mean, yeah. So, again, every circumstance is going to require uh, a, a different approach because this is people 
you know, we're talking about. So I, I can't give a like step-by-step start here, have this conversation, but I will suggest that some of these frameworks that we're talking about, as you can internalize some of these and develop deep biblical conviction and, and educate yourself for why are we where we are, then appropriately, compassionately having these conversations. In fact, becoming a really good question asker is going to be better than a question answerer. Um, but asking the right questions requires a deep uh, internalization of the subject matter. Um, and so I just, you know, again, I'm not trying to prove points. Like, um, identify the pain points. Let's talk about that. Why do you Why do you think that? Uh, how does that align with scripture? Or how does that align with reality? Or, you know, it's, it's sadly a conflating of a very real clinical condition with a... A, a cultural kind of narrative that's going on. And so I, I pulled this back up to say, mm-hmm. sounds like the majority of what's going on is at this level, mm-hmm. uh, right? The whole deconstruction, right? There's, there's any number of, like, mm-hmm. tell me about that. Why did you deconstruct your faith? What, what was the off-ramp, you know? Um, mm-hmm. Probably she can't articulate that. And so you're, you're a coach, you're helping her. Mm-hmm. Now this, this assumes she's open to talking and open to dialogue and open, which sadly a lot of people aren't. And in that case, respect there. Mm-hmm you know, their space and their unwillingness to talk about something. But if she's genuinely curious, and gen- then these types of thoughts, you know, of the biblical narrative versus the secular narrative is what is going on under the surface. Um, and then you got spiritual forces, and that's not this mm-hmm. seminar. We'll let Colby uh, do a... Yeah, for uh, sure. But there's all kinds of prayer and, uh, um, you know, and uh, good, good conversation, mm-hmm. loving... Uh, there's an art of logic and there's a science of logic, mm-hmm. right? You can know the science of logic and be terrible at the art of having a good conversation and asking good questions mm-hmm. and being compassionate and listening more than we talk, which is mm-hmm. my, my challenge. Yeah. So I'm sorry I can't offer something it's more okay. specific. No, it's great. Um, kind of tagging on with that, do you ha- we have children who are friends with her children. What are some good ways where we can lovingly, I mean, obviously, stuff that we're learning in this class, but like, what are, it's, it's, they don't see them very often, but we run into them occasionally, like at the park or the grocery store or whatever. And what are ways that I can lovingly, like, teach my children, prepare them for the fact that their friends might be boys today or they might be girls today? And like, how to, get them to not run up to their friends and be like, you're living in sin. Like, how do you, <laughs> you don't, we don't want that from your child. You want your child to be able to have the head knowledge without, I don't know. How, how would you approach that? Yeah. Come back next week. Okay. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's, that's 70 minutes of next week. So, okay, perfect. Uh, I mean, that, yeah. So Can't let's, wait. let's turn a corner. Yes. And and talk more specifically about that next week. Perfect. Yeah, Faith. Can you run that mic over or just pass it down to Faith? Great questions. Great questions. No, no, no. I want to I wanna get to it. So how did we get to the point where people are referring to God as she? I've never heard of that. Sure. Yeah. So I, I, th- I think the, the um, you got a couple things going on there. Um, we have a... Uh, a, a social phenomenon where we are trying to not bias, you know, um, it's, there's a lot of ideology that's kind of superimposed on top of Christian ideology there, uh, where, 
we don't know what pronoun God would prefer to use. So let's let's cover our bases. And and I know there's a, a religion class at Baylor this year that caused quite a hubbub when the new religion professor passed out her syllabus and said, we will refer to God as they because we don't know what pronouns they prefer at Baylor in the religion department. Um, and there's a lot of just culture kind of layered on top because the historical position has been God has been referred to in the masculine. Um, and and I actually dug into that this week because I saw that question online, trying to get a little bit more perspective on that. And when you get right down to it, there are some different arguments people make as to why that is. Why does God, because it's understood that God has does not have a sex. Like God, God, the Father, this, the historical position is that God does not have a sex in that he is not embodied in the way that we are. Jesus was embodied as a male. And there's a lot of debate out there as to why was that? Why was Jesus embodied sexed at all? Why was he not embodied as a female? Or, you know? And the, uh, when you get down to the basement level, the, the strongest argument is because that's how God chose to reveal himself. And that's where kind of like our modern uh, moralizing of this issue can, we can misappropriate that on top of thousands of years of just commonly accepted truth. And it rubs us wrong, but just because it rubs us wrong doesn't mean we can just throw it out the window. It does mean we can evaluate why did God, these are modern questions, so why did God reveal himself that way? A few other thoughts. Um, He is both transcendent and and imminent, but he is the only initiator of life ultimately. Like uh, we don't add to God. God adds everything to us. That's a distinctly masculine characteristic, if you will, in terms of the sex embodiment where the man plants the seed, initiates life that way. Of course, it requires the woman to gestate it. So it breaks down the metaphor. Don't don't ever overextend biblical metaphors. Um, But uh, C.S. Lewis said that... um, um, it's God's transcendence, ultimately, is why he reveals himself in the masculine. Um, that's C.S. Lewis's uh, thought. Uh, my best guess is people have begun to refer to God as she because they're superimposing a secular framework, which is a, uh, the thinking is it's inclusive and affirming on a historically Judeo-Christian understanding of God's nature. Um, so I think it's a worthwhile conversation to have. Um, God chose to reveal himself in this way, and so we, we align with that. It's probably not sufficient for most people, but uh, for for our time, that's where I would land. Yeah, Angel. You're awesome, but way to go being here, Angel. So great. She's 12, guys, and this is awesome. Um, I am still slightly confused. What is a secondary sex characteristics? Yeah, so secondary sex characteristics would be like body shape, um, facial hair, voice pitch, um, uh, even like breasts would be considered a secondary sex characteristic. So um, uh, a a man could have a very high pitch to his voice, which on the whole, testosterone... um, creates a lengthening of the vocal cords, a larger voice box, vocal box. And so men tend to have deeper voices. So men with very high voices can be uncomfortable in society because they don't fit the norm. But secondary sex characteristic is not considered by the medical community to determine male or female. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Primary sex characteristics are 
the presence of XY chromosomes or the XX chromosome, the, all the other, the phenotype and everything else. So secondary ca characteristics. So a, uh, a woman could have a double mastectomy and have both breasts removed and still very much be a woman. Mm -hmm. That was a secondary sex characteristic. So it's more like an outer physical thing? Typically, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Is that kind of the same thing as a eunuch? So a eunuch would was typically described as a eunuch because of secondary sex characteristics. Now, it gets a little bit more complicated than that when you talk about um, other, I mean, there's reasons that their secondary sex characteristics could be what they are. But yes, historically, uh, the eunuch was um, not considered masculine enough to be in masculine society in Greco-Roman culture. But but mostly because of secondary sex characteristics. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. Good questions. Oh, time again. I mean, we didn't get to any of the online stuff, and so I am just lying through my teeth to you guys. Um, so, like last week, what we'll do is uh, anybody who needs to make an exit, I'll pray to close us, and you can make an exit. I've got till about eight o'clock, and so anybody who wants to stay, we can just can stay, and and if you have to leave, you can catch the recording, which. We double and triple checked. We should have we should have it uh, uh, buttoned down tonight. So, uh, if you need to leave, uh, for those who are interested, actually just across the hall, ADS has Dan Bauman in, who's a uh, uh, itinerant missionary with YWAM. Fantastic story. So they're doing an open house tonight. Matthew came in, the director, and said, "Anybody who just wants to pop over and listen to Dan is welcome to do that after this." But let me pray, and then if you need to make an exit, please do so uh, respectfully, and we'll continue to talk. Whoever wants to stay. So, Father, thank you. For for your grace and your patience and your wisdom and your um, person, that you are more substantive than our own internal reality. There is something outside of us that's more firm, that's more real, that's unchanging. And we look to you. We put our faith in you. We ask, Holy Spirit, would you help us navigate these super complex um, topics with tremendous love and compassion in our hearts? Uh, would we embody you to everybody that we inter interact with? Uh, and I do pray that you'd equip us, equip us to help people, to help speak truth in a loving way to a very confused generation in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So again, feel free to slide out. But um, anybody else with, we'll do a couple more live questions. Yes. Yeah, Mandy. Yes. Yeah, so you have in, um, throughout history, you have the phenomenon of men presenting as women and women presenting as men. And there's a lot of literature out there. Uh, it was not considered an internal gender identity. It was purely an external and typically was along the lines of hetero or homosexuality. Um, but it wasn't, to my knowledge, there was probably a term, but I have not come across one. Um, it was typically the male was too effeminate to be male according to Greco-Roman standards. And I'm just talking about biblical times. I know nothing of Chinese society or Japanese society throughout the ages, or I'm just talking about the time period around which um, the Bible was, the New Testament was written. Um, so that's a great question. I, I know there's a ton of literature. The argument that this is a modern phenomenon, people didn't have consensual monogamous homosexual relationships, and like... There is so much literature, secular and Christian, from Harvard, University of Texas, Austin, that this was a very common 
practice, homosexuality in particular, uh, even transgender like presentation was very common at this time. The Caesars, there were several Caesars that presented as women uh, because they were homosexual and uh, different reasons. And anyway, very common. So this is not even remotely a modern phenomenon. What is modern is the identity, the internal identity, that my subjective identity trumps any external reality. That, ten that really is pretty, pretty much a modern phenomenon. Yeah, Kent. I didn't repeat the question, but I think people got it. Yeah, flip that. I'm not, oh, yeah, I'm, got it. I'm not sure exactly how to ask this question, but I, I'm puzzled by um, what drives the opposite view to, to the point of doing this insane stuff you talked about on the clinical reality. What, what, what is driving their desire to move in that direction so, so powerfully? It's a great question. And I would, I would think there are a number of motivational realities. From the clinical side, it's a multi-billion dollar industry to take a healthy person and, uh, and, and uh, diagnose them as unhealthy for the rest of their lives. Uh, that their, their natural biology is an unhealthy part of who they are and now you, you have a lifelong patient. So it, it is a multi-billion dollar industry. I can't help but think that there's a, a motive there. Um, from a purely ideological standpoint, if there's nothing objective outside of the self, and this is the work of Michel Foucault and Jean-Paul Jean Sartre and others, other existentialists uh, in the 20th century, that um, they, took, they took the work of Hegel and Marx and, and kind of uh, developed it to say, if there's nothing objectively true outside the self, then those who are in power d determine reality. Language is power, right? So it kind of goes back to that Genesis 1 and 2 reality where God's language in Genesis 1 determined reality. Man's language in Genesis 2 simply identified reality that had already been determined by God. Well, that's out the window now. Now we, are the, we construct our reality through our language primarily. Um, so that's why pronoun use, we will talk about this next week, but that's why pronoun use is such a hot button moral imperative to use somebody's pronoun because that is who they are. And you, you can't say, well, I, I love you, but I disagree with your, you know, your gender expression in the same way that you can't say, I love you, but I disagree with your blackness or your Hispanicness. It is such a fundamental, fundamental part of their identity that like, you know, we would just intuitively, if somebody was like, I, I accept you, but not your blackness, we'd be like, you can't do that, right? I'm black, like, or I'm white, or I'm Hispanic. I'm, you can't do that. And so somebody with this gender identity, they're gonna say, you can't accept me and reject who I am fundamentally. And they've constructed that through language, largely, this subjective internal first-person experience. So I think some of that, I don't know that everybody's thought about it at that level of depth, but that's probably driving a lot of the, like, the passion that you see behind this. Because if you strip this away, and Carl Truman makes this point extensively in his book, if you strip that away, you leave somebody with next to nothing. And so uh, Francis Schaeffer, uh, some of you might be familiar with him, ministered in the 70s uh, on the hippie, kind of the hippie routes in Europe. And he talks about how delicately he would have to, to broach these issues with people because 
their, their sense of self was so wrapped up in these ideologies that you had to very carefully, lovingly kind of strip this back to replace it with truth because otherwise you're, you're dehumanizing the person from their vantage point. Even if it's not true objectively, there is no objective truth to them, so um, they're demanding that you come onto their turf. Uh, and I, and I, I can understand it to a degree, to a point. And we'll talk about what do we do with pronoun use next week uh, in that case. I don't know. Those are just a couple of thoughts. I'm sure there's a million motives that people have that are driving this narrative. Political realities, and I'm not qualified to speak to that in this room. Yeah, Tiffany. Yeah, so the question, it's, it's a relatively small number of people affected by the trans reality. Um, why is it such a big issue? And again, I would, uh, I would point to this behind me. <clears throat> if, so there's a big rat's nest of ideas in our society right now. Um, and it's really complex, and we're about to enter another election cycle, and it's only going to get messy again. If you, if you just reach out and gra grab a random thread... Right, so if you just go online and just pick a random post from somebody, and you really start following that thread through its logical progression, you're gonna come back to kind of these top ideas here. And, and so if you start to unravel, on one level, where we are is, is really logical. Like, in fact, they haven't gone far enough, they being like a secular humanist who's following this branch of ideas. If, if there is no God and there's no objective reality and there's no purpose to life and there's nothing innately uh, exceptional about being human, then we should be able to do whatever we want. Like uh, maybe within some social contract so, so society doesn't just melt down cataclysmically. But who's to say that's not wrong? Like there is no objective truth. There's no objective morality. Um, so you know, I should be able to be a cat or I should be able to be Jeff Bezos and liquidate his account if I so identify, you know, on a particular day. Who's to tell me I'm not, right? Um, so if you combat, if you come against one facet of this ideology, it's a, it's a domino effect where it, it, it carries all the way back up to these essential truths and that's going to be defended vehemently because people are very uh, resistant to change. So even though the specific manifestation of trans ideology is so narrow, um, it's connected to this network of ideas under the surface that are all interconnected. And so I, I think that's in part why this is such a a widespread issue, and I was talking again, I said this last week, but I was talking to Sean and Shannon Jones, our youth pastors, and they said, what we're seeing in the youth at Antioch is not that a ton of kids are wrestling with their gender identity, but this idea of the decoupling of gender from sex is so normative, and it's attached to all these other ideas that it's unraveling their faith at a bunch of different levels. And, um, and I would say the, the flip side is true, that if you start pressing on the logic behind um, you know, gender expression or gender identity, it's gonna unravel a bunch of other secular ideas under the surface. Uh, and people tend to, to protect their, um, oh, there's so much we can go into here. There's some great research out of Harvard with uh, Lisa Leahy and, and uh, Robert Keegan 
about how and why people change as adults, like adult cognitive development, and how most people are so resistant to change and the reasons why, and and how somebody can actually upgrade their their mental frames. And uh, but we don't have time in this setting, so uh, I think it it's so widespread because it touches on just about every other ideology that's fueling society today. It's my opinion. You can feel free to disagree. Great question, though. Yep. Please. Yeah, give him the mic. The thought I had, wow, that's a lot louder than I thought, um, was that while you were giving the, the statistic earlier of 0.02% of people that are genetically, like physiologically affected by something that's, the, the word is intersex, of course, um, is maybe not the appropriate word, but... Um, the number I've seen thrown out for the last couple of months from a variety of different studies is that 20% of Generation Z identifies as LGBTQAI+, whatever the, the acronym is. So um, so while, while it might be a very small percentage, the, if the question was why it's a big issue as far as widespread, I don't know if I was understanding that question correctly. In addition to all those different breakdowns that you were talking about societally, those contribute to it's not just the news and, and politics is all discussing this 0.02% of the population. It's, it's one in five people my age that identify within that, those confines, something in there that has become part of their identity. Yeah, it's helpful. And, you know, and, and I, I would love to like press on that statistic because what are we talking about when we talk about identify as trans? Because we just talked about there's a lot of different, there's a spectrum of, of, Spectrums again. There's a range of uh, different ways that people can transition. You know, that's a social presentation to hormonal, uh, to surgical, and so because this concept of gender is so ambiguous. Um, again, I I took the test online. If you were here last week, I took a quiz, and I was 52% male and 48% female, according to the to the best you know gender quiz online that was that was based solely on on cultural stereotypes. So yeah, of course. Like if I was a 16-year-old today, growing up as I did as a 16-year-old in Tulsa, Oklahoma, who was by myself most of the time, playing with Legos, writing stories, and lost in my head, and didn't know how to interact with the boys in the playground who were playing sports, and was you know last picked, and you know, I would probably be trans. Like even if I wasn't taking hormones and cutting off body parts, I would have. The narrative would have. Um, supplied some of that vacuum that I didn't get from my dad or from, you know, I didn't grow up in a Christian home, so there was no pastor. There was nobody speaking truth of like, you know, I was going to share this next week, but Paxton, my uh, 11-year-old, uh, recently he um, he's playing basketball and, and he went out to buy some basketball shoes with my wife and he came home and Steph walks in the door and kind of gives me this like, Ugh. and Pax holds up these shoes that were mainly pink and purple and, um, you know, Steph's like, uh, he, he wanted to buy them. I didn't know what to say, you know. And, and so um, we know, like, our family knows. So what I, I said, I said, hey, man, cool shoes. Um, and I said, hey, just so you know, in this culture, pink and purple are associated with girls. We know, our family knows, there's nothing inherently feminine about pink and purple. Like, in fact, God is arrayed in purple. It's the color of majesty. So it's just a silly, it's a silly cultural thing that we live in today. So are you okay knowing that um, you might get comments? Some, you know, some kid might make fun of you for your shoes. He's like, why would I care about that? I'm like, great, all right, then we're good, you know? Um, but 
in in the absence of that, of a dad who's trying to be present and, you know, and some kid buys pink and purple shoes because he thinks they're cool and then he goes out in the basketball court and six kids call him gay and he starts that, that seed of thought gets planted in there. He's like, huh, I am different from the rest of the boys. They're all wearing, you know, whatever, uh, Ky- Kyrie Irving's or whatever, like, and I've got these pink, maybe, uh, you know, and, that, and there's this powerful tsunami wave of narrative so I have no doubt that there are 20% of the kids today, I don't know if that statistic's true or not, but I would, it wouldn't shock me that there are lots of kids that are now just kind of all jumbled in their minds uh, because of this narrative. Please, give her the mic. Yes. Oh, I'm the opposite of mixed family makeup, and I have three daughters, and um, they push back against pink, two of my three, because socially... My middle is very athletic. She's taller than me, and she's 12. (laughs) And so she pushes back to be only turquoise and blue, but she is incredibly feminine, incredibly female, and loves all the feminine things. I think socially we've had to have that same conversation from the flip side of culture. But again, if we were not parents like speaking into that truth of who she is, which is fearfully, beautifully, and amazingly femininely made, she could have wavered. And so I think we struggle with that. So just like it happens on both sides, I think is just what I'm thinking. And as a teacher of these children, (laughs) um, they don't want to be alone. And that's why I think you're seeing a 20%. Like, I'm not good at the head knowledge, but I can tell you the heart of what I see in my room every single day in a public school. And they don't want to be alone. So they recruit others to tell them who they are and be like them um, would be the other thing I think that's skewing that data a little. You're welcome to push back on any of that. (laughs) I am not learned in this topic. Great. Great. Great thoughts. Anybody else? Yeah. Yeah, go ahead. Get the mic. Um, Just hearing about what you were talking about, it makes me think that there's a lot of it that's, even all of it, that comes from mental aspects. And, like, just now, like, I'm wondering if there's been studies on it, um, except it's how the narrative is set by society is that you can be outspoken but not opinionated. And so while hearing you talk about like all the statistics, I was thinking about how one of the drives of the LGBTQ community is we need more support because our suicide rates are up because people don't accept us. And then you think about just how, in my mind, that signals a lot of mental anguish, um, not being happy with your core self, and then putting it into other areas. It's like everyone at some point wants to avoid their problems and run away from them. You know, the whole entire uh, uh, fight or flight thing. And um, uh, some people, I'm betting that a lot of the people that um, changed what they identified as um, didn't have like that support or they didn't have access to um, someone to make them feel valued. Um, And those people can actually become the really influential ones because they're so unsure of themselves. 
and just all kids nowadays are so unsure of themselves. Like this is a terrible comparison, but it makes me think of um, when you were talking about um, um, like words, being powerful with words is our society has become so good with words and fueling them for the agenda that they want to push and want others to believe that it's leading others to sympathize where they normally wouldn't. Like it's pulling Christians out of churches and completely believing different things because for one part, empathy, and for another part, people feel really lost in what's going on and just being scared. And it hasn't just been outspoken and accepted that it, um, that other people have the opinions on what's going on. And like, um, I think you said a, um, a statistic about Seattle. Um, I'm from Washington State um, and I moved here in 2020 and you saw a lot of that. Like it was normal to hear about um, GSA Club, Gay Straight Alliance, and it was super accepted. Like, I'm very glad that I finished up my last two years of high school here because um, I could have gone a completely different direction. Like my sisters that are still in Washington State, they are um, 15, uh, 13, and one of them just turned six on April 21st. And they're homeschooled now because of the situation there as soon as COVID hit and my sisters started being called different. My mom was like, no, we're putting a stop to this. And a lot of parents are stepping out, but because they're opinionated, they're not being listened to. So that's just a lot of what I gathered about what you discussed is a lot of it's pure, um, the mental aspect, like the charmingness. Um, uh, this is not a very good comparison, but like Ted Bundy, he was charming. And like people who are, know their way around words, you never doubt what's further like in them. Like when you were talking about um, and he said, Margaret, the founder of Planned Parenthood. Um, to me, it sounds like that kind of person really needed counseling and was suffering from her own demons. I mean, I'm just saying it. Like, all of you must have been thinking, like, she should have been hospitalized and helped, and instead, uh, what she said was somehow accepted, and I don't see how people can blindly follow what they don't know. I mean, as in, we... We follow God and we don't see him, yet people will follow Planned Parenthood when they don't actually know the history behind it, and then they have made up their mind. I just, I have a lot of opinions about this, is I think it's a lot of brainwashing. Yeah, yeah, a lot there, great thoughts, yep. Well, it just got me thinking about how the church is always behind, always. You know, every revolution that is happening in America, it seems like we're 30, 40, 50 years behind the curve. And it reminds me of this book I read, um, you know, how we are living in a post-Christian America. And he would identify that as having been true now for about 40, 50 years. But the church still thinks we're living in a Christian country. And we still have these thoughts as if society is still the same expectations as when we grew up, uh, you know, those of us above 50. And um, so we think our kids are still growing up in sort of that atmosphere. And I certainly, in my naivety, 
thought my kids were doing that as well. And so, you know, I was thinking of Zhang and we have this idealized self and then we have our shadow self. And this idealized self is sort of built on these normatives of society. And I was thinking, oh, my kids will have that sort of idealized self built on these Christian assumptions that I had because of the culture I was raised in. And they'll have those same sort of things because of the culture and all that. And what I realized was um, that was my own arrogance or stupidity. I'm not really sure what I chalked it up to. But the fact is, you know, I now have a 25-year-old stuck in this. Um, and, and, he had, and he had every opportunity not to be. <laughs> and I used to think it was because of my own guilt, my own bad parenting, but I just don't see that anymore. I think it was really just um, this uh, making the errant assumption, which I think we all do, that they're growing up in a culture that we grew up in. Mm -hmm. And they're being surrounded in the sort of the same sort of normative thinking that we were surrounded in. And, and they just weren't. Yeah. I mean, you put, your, you put your finger on, I think, one of the, the big issues and that is we have shifted the underlying the underlying ideas in our society now at the level of the media the academy education uh, I, would, I would argue politics on both sides that's i whatever um uh, just uh, at most of the major institutions in our society today are operating with an undercurrent of this left-hand column um at at scale like um and it's been true in the coasts for a number of years. It's it's more and more true at just about every level of society, including the South. Um, and that's the the shift. I don't know if I mentioned this last week in this class or this was somewhere else, but uh, I don't think the church is prepared to be a church in exile. And what I mean by that is, if you lived in in Israel during the time of the kings, then even if you were not a devout follower of Yahweh. You, the institutions, the general, the, the water that you swam in was largely Jewish. Um, that shifted when they were exiled to Babylon. Now, the and it was very flagrant. I mean, that was a flagrant shift from a Jewish worldview to a Babylonian worldview, a pagan worldview. And they had to adapt. And so you see Daniel and his friends um, expressing their faith in a very pure, distilled way, at times promoted for it, at times persecuted for it. Um, and and a deep devotion to the word came up. They were probably children under Josiah's reforms, and I don't know that the church is prepared to be a church in exile with a, a distinctly Babylonian um, operating system within the school system and the media and business and the academy and so on and so forth. So, um, yeah, uh, uh, we might be a little behind, but I am tremendously hopeful, tremendously hopeful that the church can can live a pure, um, unadulterated way of Jesus that is going to shine brighter and brighter in this culture in particular. And already my friends on the coasts in Seattle and I was listening to a guy who lives in Melbourne, Australia, and they're like, the experiment's failing. Um, and so rather than lob bombs at the enemy, let's live our faith in a very, and speak truth, speak truth to culture but live our faith in a very winsome way so that there's a life raft as the ship of secular society is sinking. And it will sink because it just doesn't, can't run society on, on the principles that, that 
you see there, um, at least logically. You got to get some kind of blend. Let's. Um, Ah, <laughs> uh, uh, so we'll talk next week about this idea of accompaniment and um, the the idea of love and truth, the two-fisted love and truth, where um, if you just come with the hammer of truth or you just come with the acceptance of love, it's it's a it's a one-dimensional expression of Jesus. And so, in this case, uh, you know, he came back to this individual and said. Um, I don't doubt your spirituality. I don't doubt your commitment to Jesus. Um, and I'd like to explore together uh, what it means to live a sexed embodiment. What it lived, what, he didn't use that language, but what, it, what, it, what was the original intent behind male and female? Uh, would like to do that together and, and explore together. And it's my conviction that the Holy Spirit will illuminate truth. Um, and I don't believe that this is, that, that this path was necessarily God's best for you, um, but I'm with you. I'm with you in the journey, and I want to walk this path with you. And, and the reality is, for a lot of people who've done like gender reassignment surgery, it could be too costly financially, it could be too costly to health to like physically reassign and to, um, to become male or female again. And so what does it look like? What does discipleship look like in that context? And so this idea of accompaniment of this is complex. We're going to work it out together in relationship. And to my knowledge, uh, I, I didn't follow up after about six months or so. There were some rocky conversations initially. The person stuck around. There were some real painful considerations. They made the decision to have this person not serve in kids' ministry. That was a real pain point. This person did not respond well to that decision. But to my knowledge, stuck around at least for a little while to start to go on this journey together. Um, and my pastor friend was like, I'm not going to help you pursue a woman. Um, here's why. Um, but let's work that through. Um, so I don't know where they're at today. But this idea of accompaniment, I'm with you in the journey. I'm going to fall forward with you. And uh, here are a few points that um, we're going to disagree on. And this, this could get really challenging. So um, let's call it there. Would love to keep chatting. What's your name, by the way? Yes, Alexis. Thank you for uh, offering your thoughts. And I would love to keep chatting because I know you had your hand up. But we do have to call it for tonight. Bless you guys. Thank you. Absolutely. I feel the insufficiency of this, uh, this time constraint. So Lord Jesus, breathe on it. <laughs>